The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision. The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. Education needed to happen about quality food, about nutritional food, about how to live a sustainable life and how to look after our planet. Well, welcome to part B of our interview with Ronnie Khan, the CEO and founder of Oz Harvest. I think you'll agree that part A was absolutely fascinating. You can hear the passion and drive in Ronnie's voice. So in part B, we talk about the future of Oz Harvest, as well as some standard questions we ask all of our podcast guests on leadership and other things. And again, it's another fascinating interview with Ronnie Khan. There was one night that changed it all in 2002 when you coordinated an event for a 1,000 people. Can you tell us about that night? Yeah, it was a major bank that spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this event, and I created the equivalent of a Roman banquet. But because there were 1,000 people, I created at least 40 stalls of food draped with grapes, with huge wheels of parmesan, with loads of bread with kegs of wine and barrels of beer. And my guests walked in. They were young, very young demographic, and they went straight for the wine and the beer. And within an hour, they were pissed and they barely touched the food, even though we normally always would try and steer people to food first. Anyway, this event ended and I was left with literally thousands of kilos of food. And most of my events were in unique venues, not so comfortable or easy to collect food. So up until that point, literally food was just being turfed out at the end, but never in this quantity. And and it became, and I looked at it and it was unconscionable to think that I could throw away this food. So without even thinking, I loaded some of it up into my, out one vehicle and into my little sports car. And I only knew of one, I, I didn't even know of a charity, really. I, I mean, I volunteered every now and again in different places, but never with the consciousness of what they did. But I did know about one on my way home in the eastern suburbs in Sydney behind the Ferrari and the Porsche dealers, there was an agency. And I arrived there two in the morning, knocked on their door and said, is this food useful to you? You know, I had to step over bodies to get there. It was pretty confronting. And they just said, oh, my Lord, yes. And that shifted and changed for me because it made me realize, oh, my God, I can just, it it became a bit like Robin Hood. I can make sure there's surplus food, but I didn't have to try very hard and I could give it to this agency. And then I asked them if there were any others. And at first they didn't want to tell me because they loved, they thought that they'd get less food. And I said, don't you worry about it, there's enough. And so through word of mouth, my rogue food rescue life began because Um, I didn't ask any questions and I didn't ask if I could. Amazing. And and I I want to, 
kind of link that back to something you said at the beginning around the fact that you didn't necessarily have a drive towards sustainability at the at that time, and you didn't see yourself as an environmental warrior. And I think that you said that that, yeah. that yourself yeah. um, earlier, or where I've read um, previously. Um, all you knew is that perfectly good food was being thrown out. I, I actually find that pretty encouraging, to be honest, because I think it's okay for people um, to have thinking around sustainability that evolves over time. And now, as you said at the outset, it's now a driving force into thinking, even though maybe 10, 20 years ago, it wasn't. So I think that's a, it's a really important message, I think, for everyone that that thinking can evolve. And just because you don't think down that path now doesn't mean you might not in five or 10 years' time or a little bit later. Well, actually, I, I will correct one thing. I think that we didn't then, but with what we know now, we actually, there is an urgency. Mm. And I would urge every single person who's listening, if they're not on that journey yet, to get on this train because for the future of my children and my grandchildren and every single person who's listening in our lifetime and I'm already old but in our lifetime the changes that we are seeing are so fundamental so profound and so urgent that we have to take action and that is something really that I put a stake in the ground for the next nine years for us harvest and that is about upping the ante, raising the level of awareness, and we are launching a major campaign in a couple of weeks, which I hope everyone hears about. Can't wait to hear about it more. It's such a what's well, so, so, so clear when you say it now, and I can't wait for that campaign. You, you then you then visited South Africa and met up with Silma, who I know you had a close bond with as a child. Yeah, and that seemed to me to be the next step in your thinking. Just tell us what happened there. Yeah, so I went to visit. I went back to South Africa. I hadn't been back for so many years. I hadn't been back since Mandela had been released. So the childhood South Africa for me that I'd left was an apartheid South Africa, a scary place, a place where racial discrimination ruled. But that world had changed And I'd come back and Selma, my closest, one of our closest family friends said, um, we're going to go to Soweto. Now Soweto for me as a child and as a, as a young adult growing up in South Africa was probably one of the most intimidating places. It's, um, was a city. We used to call it a township. That was the language that we were brought up with that was created to house um, black South Africans who were servicing and working in the city of Johannesburg. And it was a shanty town. There is no other way to describe it. Dusty roads, houses cobbled together with cardboard, corrugated iron, and a white person entered there at their own risk. It really was the place of nightmares for me. And I arrive back and Selma says, we're going to Soweto. And I think, holy moly, what is she taking me to? But the new world. And as we drive into Soweto, Selma says to me, um, I, I very humbly under her breath, she just says, I was responsible for electricity in Soweto. 
And honestly, I say it still, it doesn't matter, 18 years later, almost 19 years later, the hairs on my arm stand up because all I heard was and all I felt was what is it going to take to make that kind of impact on that many people? Because here was a city of 3 million people and it had been in darkness and Selma brought electricity there. And I literally, the light bulb went off in my head that I wanted to know what that could feel like. And I knew by the time we went into Soweto, which was to look at an AIDS clinic that Selma had set up, she's a radiologist and was educating African women on how to prevent AIDS. I knew my life would never be the same again. And I knew that I would start an organization that would make sure that good food would feed hungry people and that would have an impact. I didn't even know then that 5 million people in Australia needed food. And you you came back to Australia and, of course, started Oz Harvest inspired by that visit and you visited the Macquarie Foundation first up and when I read that, my eyes lit up because I was privileged enough to serve on that Global Foundation Committee for a couple of years. What I found really interesting was how you pitched the idea and a really um, simple description of your concept and how you were planning to do it and and your after belief in in people in you um, to, to to back the idea and 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 that that really resonated with me because you go on to say that you've never done a PowerPoint presentation in your life and you're anti PowerPoint and I love that concept because I think far too often we all. Um, rely on that screen and we talk to the screen and we and we talk to the points and we don't talk to the people. We end up exactly. talking about detail and not vision and where you want to get to and belief. I, I, I think everyone would benefit from your 60-second um, PowerPoint philosophy <laughs> because that's what, that's what I came away with and I love it. <laughs> well, when I pitched to Macquarie, um, they said, okay, we want you to come and do a PowerPoint for a whole bunch of our people so that they know what we're going to invest in. And I'd never done a PowerPoint and, and I got somebody to help me with slides because I thought I'd better do this right if I want to get the money. But I didn't have a clue, not because I'm not technological, but I'm not technological, but because when I talk, I talk. And, and there I was starting to talk and pressing the buttons. And after about four slides, the head of the foundation, Julie White, said, I think you should ditch the PowerPoint. <laughs> I said, thank God. And I never touched PowerPoint again because I cannot tell my story. I cannot share what I'm seeing. I cannot share what I know with a few points on a PowerPoint. And every time I listen to a PowerPoint where it's exactly as you said, people point to the PowerPoint and read as if I can't read. If I needed someone to teach me to read, I'd, I'd find a different way of doing it. If you want to pass information on to me, tell me your information. And so I'm not a, I'm not a fan of PowerPoints and never have used it since. And then, and then you met a, a, a person who's definitely not a PowerPoint kind of guy, Greg Goodman, 
Uh, you gave you your first office and first van, and then since has funded you to the tunes of millions of dollars with no fan with no fanfare, mind you. Um, Not only no fanfare. It took years until I could say, "Can I put your logo somewhere? Can I? I need you as a role model. I need people to know that you're giving money." And just to give you an idea, a few weeks ago, I had Goodman. I had Joe, the head of his foundation, call and say, what's going down with this lockdown? And I mm. said, well, funny you should ask. I need a warehouse, another warehouse. They've, they've given me a whole bunch. I need another warehouse. We need to pack hampers. And she said, uh-huh, okay. And how many hampers do you need to pack? And at that time we were looking, this is eight weeks ago, I said we're looking at 4,000 hampers. She said, uh-huh, and how much will 4,000 hampers cost? I did the math. I said, about half a million dollars. She said, okay, I'll come back to you tomorrow. And Goodman has funded 4,000 hampers for, for eight weeks and then gave me the warehouse. And then I called them again and said, actually, to be safe under COVID, I need two warehouses <laughs> because I need to be able to make sure that two teams don't affect the other in case somebody gets it. And I got two warehouses. So, you know, that's business that's got generosity, purpose, and meaning at its core. I always say his name isn't Greg Goodman for nothing. He is a good man. And, and doing good when no one's yeah. watching is, is even yeah, better than, exactly. than doing good broadly. You touched on something at the outset around how Oz Harvest has diversified and is diversifying, and I don't, ne- don't necessarily suggesting that this is a part of a grand 50-year business plan. It's probably what seems natural. Um, can you just touch on that again in a little bit more detail? So Cooking for a Cause, Oz Harvest Market, Nourish, Nest, Feast Programs. I know there's a lot there, but I think it's really important everyone understands that Oz Harvest is evolving to even doing more good things for people. Absolutely. So thanks for asking that. Yes, that evolution took place quite early on, although we didn't make a big noise about it. Now we're making it very clear that we are these, I guess, three things. We're about um, rescuing food, we're about education, and we're about sustainability. And education and sustainability are definitely connected, as is innovation, because innovation is in our DNA. Um And so the education programs evolved because I started giving people food that they'd never seen. There's this beautiful story. I arrived early on to a charity. I just collected food from MasterChef and there was a whole pink salmon. Delivered it off to a charity that had a chef that knew how to cook it. And they called me the next day and said, you just, I've got to share this with you. People came up to us and said, we don't think we can eat this fish. We think it's off. And the chef said, look, I need you to know that it was collected by Oz Harvest in a refrigerated vehicle. It was delivered in real time. We've had it on ice. This fish came straight from the market, and I have cooked it, and it's beautiful, and it's not off. Why do you think it's off? And they said, because it's pink. (laughs) I've never seen pink fish. So the point is, Education needed to happen about quality food, about nutritional food, about how to live a sustainable life. And that was our first program, Nest. And then we rolled out um, 
our FEAST program because the urgency of climate action, the urgency of obesity, the urgency of nutrition and sustainability meant that we needed to create little echo warriors. We need climate change warriors going home to their parents and shifting and changing behavior. It's incredibly challenging to shift and change behavior. And so our FEAST program rolled out into primary schools and it teaches teachers how to deliver. It's a, it's, it's, um, uh, curriculum accredited, national curriculum accredited because the truth is schools don't have time to start creating programs. And so it, um, that's our feast program and we've just rolled it out into high school again with that view of educating about how to live a sustainable life, how not to waste food, how to cook nutritional food, and how to look after our planet. So that stream, in 2015, I went to Canberra and got Australia, our country, committed to halving food waste. The the UN SDG goal had not been announced yet. So we got tripartisan agreement um, by the then Minister for the Environment, Greg Hunt, um, to commit Australia to halving food waste by 2025, the next year when the UN SDG goal um, was rolled out, Australia, we committed then to 2030, which is why we have so so much urgency. But Ozharvest aligns with five UN SDG goals. So it's education, zero waste, zero hunger, um, uh, et cetera. And so that side of our business is growing and and to that end this campaign that we're launching is world first research that we've done with the University of Monash University and um, Behaviour Works in order to try and help citizens, all of us, to shift and change our behaviour about not wasting food. And so from an innovation point of view, I've launched a new company. It's called the For Purpose Co. Um, It is a social business where all the profits from that business will come back into us harvest because what I'm looking for is recurring income. Mm -hmm. Philanthropy is challenging to keep chasing. It is the model that we built on and we need to continue with that. But I also want money to be made while we sleep. We haven't quite cracked it. We rolled out a beautiful business Um, In New South Wales, people might have seen it. It's called Juice for Good, fresh orange juice vending machines. They're beautiful. But, of course, through COVID, they all had to be pulled because nobody can walk past and touch it. Even though we put credit card, we we redesigned the machines. But hopefully they'll go out again because that business was just turning a profit. Wonderful. It's such a wonderful platform to do so much from. I'm going to shift gears here a little and just ask you a couple of questions more broadly that we ask all guests around, um, well, investing in a bunch of things, leadership and so on. What's the most important aspect, Ronnie, of leadership that's most overlooked in your view? Empowering the team, enriching, educating and growing talent around me. The only reason that I shine is because I've chosen and have got really smart people around me. So education and development and learning is a huge stream at OzHarvest. Thank you. And as OzHarvest grows, how do you stop the culture being institutionalised and dampening that entrepreneurial spirit and innovative thinking that you touched on before? 
Yes, we are a founder-led organization, which does mean that that entrepreneur spirit. I think we've just we've just um, launched an innovation, an ideation. I'm 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 looking for an innovation person to come and work with me. Um, I think the culture is it's embedded. You know, we're a purpose-led organization, and our culture trickles through. And it's all about communication. It's all about authentic leadership. And it's all about a non-hierarchical leadership in order for that passion and culture to be drip-fed through the business. And it's not only through the leader. It's through the leadership, the people leaders and the team. So as you're building that team, you're interviewing two very equally qualified candidates, maybe it's for the uh, head of innovation role that you just mentioned. How do you determine who to hire when you've got two equally qualified candidates? How do you make the call? What's that essence of a person that you see? Attitude. So first of all, I interview every single, I do the last interview of every single person that's coming into Oz Harvest, whether they're a casual driver, whether they're a chef, or whether they're going to be part of the impact team. And what I'm looking for, skills you can learn, you can't learn attitude. So it's really understanding who they are. And, of course, anyone can be brilliant in a 20-minute interview, but you are looking for that essence. And we seem to get it right most of the time. Do you mind mentioning to me when you've failed at something and maybe how that's set you up for success later or what you've learned from it? Absolutely. You know, I have been very fortunate in that most of the things we've tried here have worked, <laughs> but we we did invest in a technology piece with the understanding that it would deliver X, Y, Z, and actually it really didn't. But what it did give us was an understanding of what we would need and how we can build that in for the future. So really that failure was was quite a costly one for us, Harvest, in that we'd never really spent money investing in a piece of technology. But it has led to really other great things. And, you know, failure is definitely the stepping stone. For and But as I say, I've been quite fortunate, but I'm, I'm, I encourage failure. I'd rather have ideation and failure than rather people be scared to ideate. Yeah, look, that's a that's a common theme for that, that we've certainly talked to business leaders about not being afraid of failure. We're going to wind down even a little bit more now. We're coming to the end. You've been so mm-hmm. generous with your time. What are you reading at the moment, Ronnie? Oh, I'm reading a few books, really a few books. I'm reading um, – oh, shit, it's <laughs> – I've got four books next to my bed and I've, I've look the, the book that I read last that was that I finished last week, which was the most powerful was called the choice by Edith eager E G E R. If nobody's read it, read it. It's the most extraordinary story of resilience, perseverance and overcoming major, major, physical and emotional challenges having been uh, this woman, Dr. Edith Eager, went through the Holocaust and her book is just extraordinary. 
the choice. We'll have choice. to have a, we'll have to look that up. Yeah, but I have a number of business books next to my bed too. Sounds like a real blend. I'm always reading self-help new books. I love reading business books um, because they inspire me and I learn things. I'm constantly curious to learn. What advice would you give your 21-year-old self? Well, I wish I could say if you'd have believed in yourself earlier, you might have achieved something bigger. But I, I do think, I do think it is that each and every one of us has an ability to find what it is within us. So don't worry, Ronnie, you'll get there. Fantastic. And what wakes you up at night? What do you worry about, Ronnie? My people being safe right now through this pandemic. I've got brave and courageous people who are on the front line. And I just, what worries me is how to protect them in the most powerful way that I can. And they're things that I can't control. And if you had to name one person who's inspired you the most in any aspect of your career, who would that be? Look, I think it would have to be Nelson Mandela. I think he's my man. I mean, there are people around me that are doing great things, but I think in terms of the spirit with which he lived his life and and achieved what he achieved, I think he's he's my man. And now to finish, this is a, a game my nine-year-old likes to play, so this is a bit of fun. Just a bit of fun. Just a bit of fun for a couple of minutes. I'm going to give you an either-or choice, and you're going to give me the answer out of the two choices I give you, with rationale or not. It's up to you. Tulips or roses? Tulips. To eat a meal prepared by Neil Perry or Jamie Oliver? Neil. If you had a choice of one dinner guest, would it be Julie Weiss or Greg Goodman? Greg. <laughs> and and to know a lot about something or to know something about a lot? I think a lot about something. That's all I got, Ronnie. We've covered so much ground. It's been it has been an absolute pleasure. I, I must say, um, race out and get Ronnie's book. I've read it twice. I couldn't put it down. It's such an inspiring story. And I I get the feeling too, there's just there's just so much more to come as well. So it's it's been delightful, Ronnie. Anything you want to say to Yeah, off? I do. I do because really I'm embarking on something that I am loving and it's called Purposeful Leadership. And I'm, I'm running, I'm starting to do training in Purposeful Leadership for um, corporate staff, for anyone actually, um, with a colleague in New York as a psychiatrist. So it's really an exciting new journey for me. So if anyone's interested in finding out more, please check in with me. Is this part of your uh, your, your social venture linked to OzHarvest or is that separate again? Look, I think it's more brand runny. Mm. It's about what happens after. Mm. <laughs> you know, I have to be, you know, everyone always asks, you know, what's going to happen when Ronnie leaves? Well, They'll find another magnificent CEO who'll do good things. Look, that that um, leadership program sounds something that um, many of our listeners will inquire about. And and how can they inquire? Should they should they yes, go through? Um, a- it, it, they can do uh, uh, Ronnie at RonnieKahn.com. 
Okay, good. Ronnie at RonnieCahn.com. If want to support Oz Harvest, it's always info at OzHarvest.org. Fantastic. Again, thank you so much for your time. I know you are so busy at the moment given the challenges that we're all facing. So thank you. And um, This has been fun. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au.